Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, we have the California-based golf writer, Laz Versailles. Laz is an outspoken writer and former club professional who brings a refreshing yet deep view of the game and what it means. Laz has written for Golf.com, Fried Egg, and Deadspin, but does some of his finest work in the golf Twitterverse. This is a long pod for us, but one that you need to finish. So let's get into it with Laz Versailles. Welcome to the Four Jack Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Four Jack Podcast brought to you by Jackson Labs, the brand consultants that we trust to get our brand going in the right direction and the brand consultants you should use to do the same. So go check them out at jacksonlabs.com. Uh, we're in here today in a, with a very interesting guest, a very fun one. Um, someone very well spoken on golf Twitter, someone that uh, grabs my attention quite often. Um, hopefully we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole tonight. But before we do that, let's just say hello to my main man, Tombo. What's happening, dude? Not too much, brother. Yeah, I uh, I think we're going down a little bit of a wormhole tonight, but uh, one that needs to happen, I think. Uh, our next guest has a lot of questions suggestions things related to making golf more accessible and i think we're gonna have a good one here today absolutely well our guests today if, if you're getting deep into golf twitter you probably have heard his name here and there um, he's a writer for the golfers journal golf.com and like i mentioned an absolute must of a follow on twitter mr lazarus Ayas, how are you sir I am so good. I'm so uh, grateful to be here on the Four Jack podcast with you, Chris and Tom. Tom, if I may, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's our Thank pleasure you. here. Yeah, I was thrilled. Thrilled to be a part of it. It's uh, This is a treat. I think that we have a lot of topics that go over, especially since you had an article that came out today that we're going to definitely touch on. But before we get into that, like, I just want to kind of give the listeners a bit of insight on who you are. Um, give us a quick little brief rundown of how you got to this point being golf writer and you know your past i mean you have a very interesting past yeah i one that we can relate to um, yeah man i mean i grew up in minneapolis i was my parents are i was first generation american my parents uh, are both from havana cuba and um so i had the privilege of growing up um in minneapolis you know, a uh, child of the eighties, if you will. And my dad was a bit of a weekend golfer. So um, that's kind of how I got introduced to the game was through him. And, you know, we would watch golf um, on TV. Sometimes I would go to the driving range with him, but um, my earliest education probably came and just jumping in the back of the golf cart with him um, on Saturdays when he'd go play with his friends. Uh, and so that probably started when I was like eight years old. And then um, I didn't really start playing until I was like 12. Like I remember watching Seve Ballesteros and I was like, I'm going to get some clubs and I want to do that. Yeah. Paint yeah. picture with the canvas out there on the golf course type of stuff. Yeah. Just a little bit more impassioned than say, you know, Curtis Strange, right? Um, and I admire Curtis Strange, but I just didn't, you know, there's such a thing as representation. And I grew up in a Spanish speaking home. So 
I would hear Sebi and his caddy speaking Spanish and that, I think it was his brother at the time actually, but that called me, you know, uh, in a certain way. I was like, wow, like that's, that's cool to me. Um, so that's kind of where it started, man. Yeah. And then you got into golf and then you actually were former club pro. Yeah, that's right. I, I was. So I was, um, and I, I did it, I wouldn't say late, but it was, you know, I was like 30 when I decided to go into that career. So, you know, a lot of people at that time, this was right around the year 2000, were starting to kind of come out of the, in the United States, the PGA of America had this PGM program where you could go to like Ferris State. I took that. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Chris. So you know what I'm talking about. And um, you would then end up working at a club as a, an assistant or an apprentice professional. And so I was working for, you know, GE Capital. I was managing automotive fleets. I was sitting in a cubicle reading Alan Shipnook and Dan Levitard all day and hated it with a passion, but I was really good at it, you know, and the, my employer is like, so what, what is it that you'd like to do next? You have these like reviews every six months that get pretty intense. And I was like, you know, I'd actually just like to leave. I don't, I don't really want to work here. GE is a wonderful education as well as the place of employment, because you're going to learn quality systems and kind of a, Kind of a, you know, just like a structure, an architectural way to go about viewing problems, to go about um, understanding needs of customers. And so I wanted to consume it and go faster, but there's this like calendar of time that you have to wait. You know, it's like if you do the black belt, it's going to be another year before you can start on the green belt. And then, you know, you can get into Six Sigma, but you can't do so right. there was a lot of structure. And I was like, I'm out of here. I, I don't like this. And they gave me like a really nice severance. And it was like, wow, this is, this is wonderful. So now I'm going to take my time. And I was 30. So I would, you know, just go out every night and um, apply for like, you know, send my resume around. And like, I had, I joined this club in, in Chaska, Minnesota, not called Hazel team. And it was, it was like 20 minutes from my office. So I would go to this club called Dahl Green Golf Club like every day, every day. And the pro there was a super cool guy. His name is Pear. And he, you know, was like, dude, why don't you consider getting in the PGA program? And I thought about it and I was like, you know, yeah, that actually, you know, I'm I here every day. Like I, I lived pretty frugally. So I was like, I could probably pull, I knew how little I would make. Yeah, you know? that's the thing. Yeah. I was going to say, I've had that exact same moment. I remember that moment. You should get into yeah. a PGM program. The best and worst thing to ever be told to me. I, I went from like around, you know, doing pretty well for a single guy to like something like $13 an hour. <laughs> like Hungry you know. man dinners. <laughs> and the only reason I got in was because, and and like you guys will appreciate this too, Chris, but like, the club you work at and the pro that you work for has an ins insane amount of say over how your career trajectory is going to go. Um, and I was incredibly lucky because young, you know, but like in college, um, I 
did some summers at Town and Country Club in St. Paul, which Derek Lane, a former four jacker, also springs from that bag room, right? Um, so Derek's done incredibly well, you know, for a kid from Winnebago, Minnesota. And shout out to Derek Lane. Yeah. So Derek and I both kind of spring from the, you know, like you have coaching trees, right? Like we kind of both spring from the tree of Terry Hogan. So like I knew about the rain weather rack that you keep in the back and never put on sale because you only bring it out, you know, like every time it rains, you bring it up, but those things never change. You don't put them on sale. No. So we learn all these tricks and um, you, it, so Terry Hogan's actually from Canada um, and was the head pro at town and country for decades and um, a massive influence on my golf life just taught me so many things and to be able to be around him was a huge gift. I'm sure Derek would tell you the same thing. Um, and then like when I got back into golf after leaving GE Capital, um, I worked for a guy named John Miller, not Johnny Miller, but um, he was a career PGA pro, like went to Bowling Green University, he's from Iowa. And, um, you know, the only career he ever knew was golf. And he got out of it about a year ago. He's now transitioned to being a realtor. Um, this year and he's doing pretty well. So he's in Indianapolis now, but we still talk all the time. And I think um, there's just, you just can't, I can't tell you how lucky I was to work for those two people and to have the dad that I had and have access to the kind of the world that I had access to. And, um, you know. I would like to dive deeper just into one part of your passion for golf because you started yeah. got introduced to going to the golf course around eight had your Seve Ballesteros moment where you're like okay I'm on this what was it about playing the game throughout those years in the middle that was like this is this is something I'm super passionate about like what aspects of golf really kind of hooked you like you know yeah. Like, I think I was just at, I forget who I was saying this to, but like, I, you know, we're earthbound creatures and like, you'll read this in certain like really nerdy out golf books, but through the tools that we hold, through the grip, through the shaft, through the club head, we kind of project a little bit of ourself into this ball that takes flight. And I think there's something about the human condition being earthbound that we see our energy transferred into this ball and that movement like is us, you know, like you're part of that ball. You're part of that screaming hook into the pool, but you know, or like, yeah, you know, you've That's just hit Green Avenue. That's you rolling down the street. Yeah. You know, it's not just like, your 40 bucks. That's your soul like bouncing out of bounds. You know, it's like you being in this natural place doing this unnatural movement to launch yeah. this ball in an unnatural yeah. height and spin rate and, trajectory that you're like well that's not that's not normal like i i'm i'm addicted to this yeah i think that's the call of the game and like i remember i went on a date with someone like god like six months ago and she told me she was a golfer right and i was like oh so what was it that drew you to the game and she's like what do you mean i was like well for most people it's the sound or it's the feeling 
or it's just being outside. What was it for you? And she's like, well, I had, I did it for work. Right. Which is, you hear women say that far too often. And it's the shittiest reason to get into it because you're trying to be something for somebody else rather than a genuine reason to get into it. You know, um, I do think so, there is a, there is some selfishness at times into it because they know if they can learn to play golf, then they get to go to the corporate scrambles and like network and do that thing. Because that that human networking capability to me, it's kind of yeah, the flight of the ball is uniquely connected yeah. to your soul. It's kind of like running, right? Once you start yeah. doing it, you can't hide who you truly are, right? But then there's that component of we're going to go spend four and a half hours today. Like today, if we have a really great podcast, we got an hour and a half, right? There's not really those moments of us like, let's have, I'm going to go walk over here, try and dig my ball out of this bush while I think about the things you were talking about your life to me. And then let's reconnect on the green and like, Hey, this is something that I've been thinking about to me, that human connection component while like traveling through finding yourself learning, discovering is all part of like the beauty of golf to me. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Yeah, very well, well said. said. What yeah. I do, what I do want to touch on, go back to like your club pro days, like how you kind of mentioned your head pro there, and how you learn these tricks and you learn how to be in the golf world, and it was the same thing. Like my first head pro ended up becoming like my mentor, and you know, you learn how to speak to you golfers, you learn how to speak to professionals, you learn how to be in that environment so naturally that it's like tying your shoes, and. Yeah for you to look at your career now, like how you kind of just took that and transitioned into being a golf writer. It's like, there's something about being encapsulated in the golf industry that it's very difficult to understand golf better than anyone that's in that position. Like, yeah, you can follow the game for years and you can play forever. But like being in the business is like, it takes on a whole nother world of understanding when it comes to the game. Like there's some deep connections in it and, just took you to that interesting place that you are in now? I think the thing that I really came to, I've always had this ability to kind of look at someone and know what they're up to. Right. And I guess what I mean by that is, um, so, you know, like, let's say you're a kid, right. And you're at the, like, we used to have a roller skating rink in my hometown and on Saturday nights, like it would turn into a dance club, right? And so like dancing, like we would go out and dance when I was a kid. And like, there was always like girls or dudes that would like stand by the wall. And like, I could kind of tell the reason she's standing by the wall or he's standing by the wall is because they can't dance, right? It's not that they're not, you know, they're waiting for you, but it's just like, they're not gonna dance anyway. They're just there for the scene. And in the golf business, you know, especially like in my later, the last, the second part of it, let's call it. Um, you know, I worked at a place called the Reserve Club in Indian Wells. And it's kind of, I, I explained to people, it's kind of like in a, a, a summer camp, well, it was a winter camp, right? It's the desert of California for adults because everybody lived on campus, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? The, the development was gated in the course was the centerpiece of it everybody would eat their meals at the restaurant they'd go to the gym that was on they'd never leave right and john and i would see people every day whether they played golf or not on the way to the gym on the way to eat and we i remember one day 
you know, we were rain, we rangered the shit out of that course because we had to teach these people how to play golf, which is why we went there. It's kind of another story, but we would ranger the course. And there was a guy who threw a club. He was a very mild mannered guy. And I remember John said something to the effect of something's really messed up in his life right now. And I was like, yeah, probably, you know, yeah. just maybe he just sculled a wedge over the green and, you know, he's like, no, no, no. Like that's, you know, like two days later, <laughs> two days later, news hits. There's a, a very dramatic event took place at the club that he was the center point of. And John and I sat at the bar that night and I was like, man, you called it like, you saw him slam a club on the sixth hole and you're like, there's something really messed up in his life. He's like, you know, like people will tell you, like you can tell more, you'll learn more about a person in a four hour round than you will working with them for four years. But yes, when you uh, work in the business, when you work in it, you really see who people are and everybody's nice to you when you show up, but nobody's your friend. You know, I tell assistants and people getting in the business right away. Never, ever think that they really are your friends. You know, you'll go on trips, you'll get invited to destinations to play with people, they'll take you to dinner, but um, you're one bad day away from getting fired in that business like no other industry. You know, it was, I enjoyed it. It was fun, but I think, you know, there's, you can only do so many couples twilight scrambles before you just lose your mind, you know. Hold on, man. And it was just, I couldn't take it, you know, like, and it's tough because every, especially at like the high, 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 ultra high level private clubs, not necessarily golf clubs, but like residential high end private places, you have 400, like we only had 250 members. So there was 400 when you count spouses and like nothing could go wrong for anybody, you know, and I remember the first day we were open, we had this like scramble and this van pulls up and it's Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and they get out and we've got an 18 hole shotgun and it's full. The course is full, right? Mm -hmm. Now I've got to go up to Bill Gates and say, look, um, welcome. Sorry, we just had a shotgun go out. You won't be able to play today. You know, he couldn't have been cooler, right? Like, but um, you've got to be able to understand that you know people are going there to enjoy themselves and recreate and have a good time um and they don't want anything to go wrong because they pay so much for that experience and there's a certain pressure that comes along with that that you either thrive in it or you're just not cut out for it you know you know what the like i've said this many times anyways and kind of touch on what you were saying yeah you can get pretty tired of the business for sure but at the same time, like, I mean, I wasn't at an ultra high end club. I was at a small little private club in Edmonton, Alberta, nothing crazy, but like leaving it, leaving the business was the hardest thing I ever did. Like, I literally remember the last shift, like crying, being like, I wish I could just figure out a way to make enough money to do this for the rest of my life. Like happily yeah. make enough money because you can't, you got to work 90 hours a week in, in Edmonton where you have six months of play. It's not possible. Yeah, and it's just like yeah. you know what this isn't worth it. But like, there is such a family aspect of it that like a communal aspect that you're like, ah, I really enjoy this. But it's kind of like selfishly, you're like, ah, this is just easy. 
and I enjoy being here. It's great. I'm yeah. around my passion. At the right club, it's great. You know, like it's a it's an awesome career at the right club. Yes. Um, at most clubs that are going to have, you know, you know what the best fit is? The club where one person owns the club. I've the never worst really fit. been at the, any of that. Like one yeah, club so in Edmonton I've been to like that. The, the club I was last at was established like in 1999, right? We had a fucking heritage board. A heritage what? committee. We had a logo committee. Okay, so we had a greens committee. We had a tournament committee. We had a women's golf committee. We had a environmental sensitivity committee. We had a logo committee. We had a historical committee. The club was opened in 1999. We had a historical committee. And um, so there's, right? So like there's all these, there's all these campers. Oh, I'll do that. I'll be on that committee. Oh, the fitness committee. I work out all the time. Bullshit. You work out twice a week and you don't break a sweat, but sure. Join the fitness committee. And so all these committees will drive you crazy, you know? So the more committees you see, probably the bigger, (laughs) probably, you know, less time they have on their hands. And I like to, I did some work for a golf club and was like, I helped the members committees all like implement their initiatives that they wanted to do at the golf club. And one thing I learned is it's, it's a grown-ups version of playing house. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Right? Like, hey, yes. okay, I'm I'm good at this. Let's we'll have a meeting. We'll meet at the club. We'll have a, a little chat, and then it's like, no, wow, yeah. Tom, and then and then to take it to like another level, Tom, like the grown-ups version of playing house, and the house is this handcrafted wood masterpiece by Bob Vila himself, right? Yeah, and, but because you know, Kenneth Watson is now on the committee. He wants to chisel serrated scores into the logs because that's the look he likes because that's what they have at his house down in Tampa. And so, like, now these committees come and they ruin the little house because they don't know what they're doing. And then the club, 15 years later, pays $20 million to get it back to the original Bob Villa design, Bob Villa design that you have. And we see this with the restoration business because people just can't help themselves, right? Like yeah. the, nobody does bad intentionally, but man, can people blow a golf club? They're just trying to make it their own a little, like yeah. put their stamp on it. Yeah. And they're normally like high achieving people. So if they're going to get on a committee, damn it, they're going to do yeah. something. Yeah. They're going to show you what their corporate career was all about, yeah, right? They're not, they're, right. They're not, there's no, Bad intentions. There seldom are bad intentions. They just want to make things better. And they don't realize that they know so little that they should just not get involved in most things. Mm-hmm. They've already got it really well. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, can I just go back to this just for a sec before we transition into some, the, yeah. our next topic? But I want to go back to that member that you were talking about that had that... Um, club throwing incident yeah yep. this is a shot in the dark and you don't even need to answer this i'm just looking at the location and possibly the timing was and this is from an oilers fan as well was that peter pocklington no oh, it wasn't okay. 
down. No, I was like, think about the timing. Yeah, I was like, that like, might have been it. <laughs> so we had members, but most of our Canadian members were from, obviously, you know, they were from the Western provinces. So we had, um, you know, people from Calgary from the, is it the Ranchman's Club or, or something? I think it's called Ranchman's right. Club. I'm not sure, but there was a few members from Calgary. There was members from Vancouver, um, Kelowna, you know, we mm -hmm. had, but a lot of these people were, um, as the club grew from, you know, the founding 50 to 80 to 125 to 200, what they were finding was that there was a lot of people joining who were interested in playing golf, maybe would play once or twice a year to your point, Tom, like corporate golf a lot of times, but now they've retired and now they want golf to be part of their life. And they didn't know how to play golf, which is not to say they didn't know how to hit a ball, right? But they didn't know that like, yeah, if you're going to take a cart, pull up, drop your buddy off, he'll grab a sand mixer, hit a shot. You go to your ball. You don't have to sit here. Mm -hmm. and yeah. Don't even get me started on that shot. shit. Just go to your goddamn ball and hit it. And then, you know, so like the first two years, I'm like bad cop. Right. John's yeah. like, hey, uh, so I wasn't really going to go out to California. Right. And John said, he's like, hey, look, I'm going to be director of golf at this club. The guy that's the head pro is going to move to Hawaii next year. If you come this year, you'll probably be the head pro next year. I was like, all right, let's do it. You know, so I went. And that first year was John and I like tag teaming, marshalling the course, just busting ass on people you know these are like really nice people but they would like you know and nobody would say no to them and like they were running shit at their companies right like yeah. running things you like know dfo coo yes like people you've heard of for sure right yeah. and so <laughs> Like they would play nine. Yeah, I have three guests and then um, we're going to go play. Great, go play. And then you'd be standing there on the 10th hole going, why is there a massive gap in the golf course here? And I've then seen a group come through in 35 minutes. No, they would like <laughs> sit and have lunch at the turn. I'm like, you don't do this. This is not how it works. Like, sorry. It is Everyone's shocking though. Like when you think about how long it takes to learn the intricacies and nuances of the game of golf, like yeah, I've literally been learning it since I was six. And even yeah. when I see people that are like older than me and it's like, man, how have you, you're like 15 years old, me 20 years old. I mean, you still haven't figured this out. Like what have no. you been doing? Like worst it's was, shocking. Yeah. We would have people playing choose ups to get to know each other. Mm -hmm. So tell us you're going to be here Thursday at eight 30 balls in the air. And we're going to just pair you up and put you out. And the first couple of times there was like this, like I noticed people kept forgetting to put pins in and I was like, what is, what, you know, like people come, come to the golf shop, like, Hey, last, first of all, I waited on every shot, which is total bullshit. And then they would say, and there was no pin on the fifth green. And then we had to put it in, in the seventh green and like little things that you learn as a kid, like first one in grabs the pin. When people are learning the game for real at 58, 60, 62 years old, and they don't, have anyone in their life that says no to them on anything like yeah. it's you've got to break down some of these really basic things like yeah rake the bunker like you fucking mean it you know like don't just ceremoniously drag the rake to the bunker quick question for you do you feel really guilty right now with covid golf when you don't take out the flag when you just walk away after you pick up your ball i feel like extreme guilt 
I'm like, oh my god, I, such an asshole. I don't know that I'm ever pulling the pin again, frankly. No way. I miss it being pulled, man. But like, I like it. Yeah. I like also just yeah. walking off the green. Yeah, I like I like just bailing. Um, I also <laughs> that's what I feel like I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's there's like a part of the ceremony that's gone. You know, yeah. like um, there's nothing better than to hear that clank when you put it back in. I I don't know if we're ready to do this, but we've been on the land of the silver spoon for quite some time that I, I know in your history of golf, there was a juxtaposition of the two worlds that you got to see. And I'd kind of like to switch gears into like, yeah, what that was like going from like country club life to the Muni and like the juxtaposition between golf and the suburbs versus the more urban community and kind of the journey of where you've seen that. Where, where yeah, I think it's, it's, it's also just in life in general, you know, I think hundred percent. People of color in the Americas often have to navigate two worlds. So there might be, you know, like if you're a private school kid and you go back to an urban community, there's a different language that's spoken, you know, um, in those two environments, right? And in the Gulf world that I grew up in, um, I grew up mostly at public courses, you know, in, in the town I grew up in and in the bordering town and in the Minneapolis, uh, park and rec division. Um, but you know, my dad knew a lot of people. So like there was certainly when we would play the city courses, it was Minneapolis is a very, has a very long history in the civil rights movement. It is when you look at the great migration, of um, you know people of the African diaspora that go into the um, urban centers of the North, whether it's Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Minneapolis, there's always been a very strong communal aspect to what that community was and how they recreated in Minneapolis. So like golf was a big part of, yeah, Minneapolis's black golf scene was a big deal. A really big deal. We, there was a, a tournament held there each year. It's still held there called the Bronze that um, is a shadow of its former self, but it was a big time three-day event with people coming from all over America to play in it. All the best black players would play in it and um, some white players would play in it too. But um, my dad's friends that I would play with, that we would play with in the city um, typically were people from the Teamsters Union that might have been baggage handlers at the airport or, um, you know, worked on the docks with him at um, the grocery store that he worked for or just people in the city, you know. And so it was, there was a lot more um, energy in those games, you know. It was, they were fun. There was a lot of shit talking, for lack of a better word. Um, there was always gambling when my dad played anywhere, but in those games, it was a little bit lighter stakes and, um, you know, you were going to get, you had a five footer that was worth something. Everybody was going to let you know about it, you know? And then like, but when he would play with his friends that, you know, were, I don't know, you know, the white people he knew, right? Like, um, it was just, it was also a lot of fun. It was just a different kind of fun you know, um, and you kind of, as a kid, can notice those things, you know, and you can, 
you will know when it's okay to laugh, right? At, at someone's misfortune versus in other instances, oh, it's too bad, right? Like it's just. Yeah, um, I'm saying tough luck. You're like, oh man, you yeah. listen those all day out here. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. Open like, up your wallet, bud. And like, yeah, which yeah, is like, good because it helps you build that. A little more salt rubbed into wounds in the urban game than there is in the suburban game, right? And so um, it's funny because like you, it's just that way in, in a lot of things too, right? Like if you go play pickup basketball, at the Burnsville, you know, Northwest Racket and Swim Club and, you know, 30 minutes from downtown Minneapolis. Pretty mild game, right? But if you go play, you know, uh, pick up at, you know, Linwood Park in Minneapolis, it's a little bit different game, a little bit mm-hmm. more verbal, right? Still basketball, both great, but different. Yes. Now, I'm just so we can kind of clarify this for the listeners, I mean, this was also some – um, opinion or not opinions. This is kind of what you wrote in your article that you released today on golf.com. And there was a lot to that article that really may have hit a lot of people in different ways. And I, I know off air, yeah. you're kind of mentioning, Oh, we have this, we have that. It's like, mm, you're missing something. The thing that I took the most from that, and we can get into the other side that I know you want to touch on, but definitely more like the caddy program, but the caddy profession, how it was essentially nuked. Yeah with the introduction of a golf cart. And yeah, I never really thought about that, but it is completely true. And the one thing that I will get into that I thought was brilliant, what you said was introducing it back, but like, Hey, offer a discounted rate. And this is what you get, but we'll touch on that. But yeah, kind of let's go over the, how that profession was killed and what that did to those areas that. So do you guys, did you ever watch um, the movie Basquiat with Jeffrey Wright? where he played the artist. Okay, it's awesome, right? And I've heard that. he's also in Wonder World on HBO. Um, he's a terrific actor, right? And he was interviewed, he had plays golf and Jeffrey Wright was saying that like, you know, when Tiger Woods won the masters, like white people were like, oh wow, like a black golfer. But to, you know, he grew up playing in the urban courses in, in DC and in, you know, where he grew up. And to them, it was like no big deal because black people have played golf forever, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not, it wasn't this novelty that Tiger showed up. It's been... We were working towards forever, it. Right? Yeah. So when you look at just the numbers of black professionals that there were 50 years ago, right, versus now, it's almost double, right? And so one of the things I look at and I've kind of learned this from working for GE capital is like, there are root causes to issues and problems. And when you can understand those root causes, then you can start to address solutions. And so I think people all too hastily say like, you know what, we don't have enough people of color playing golf. We need to do outreach on social media and get these people out here because if they see cool stuff, they'll do it. Right. Okay. So the, the caddy profession for people that didn't have money was the way they got introduced to the game. And I'm not talking about Lee Elder. I'm not talking about Charlie Sifford. I'm talking about Ben Hogan. I'm talking about Gene Saracen. I'm talking about anybody who was poor, Lee Trevino, growing up that became a great golfer. 
very, very likely was introduced to the game through caddying, through working at a club caddying. So when the golf cart came and provided a stream of revenue for these clubs that was dependable, that was rechargeable, that was you could lease it, it wasn't an appreciating asset. It was a cash cow. It's a cash cow, right? Well, sorry, caddies, you're no longer needed here. So see you later, right? And that's not to say that a club in the middle of, you know, like a, a, a suburb, like more on the outskirts, like let's say like, you know, Hazeltine National, right? Is a good 40 minutes from downtown Minneapolis. But a club like the Minicata Club is like five minutes from downtown Minneapolis. They're, you know, they're both really great clubs in Minneapolis, but they're Minneapolis area. One of them is in an urban setting, a very nice urban setting, and one's in a suburban setting. They both have carts. They both have caddy programs, right? So if a club in an urban setting were to say, like, you know what? Sorry, this is a golfing game. Unless you have a real medical re- – a walking game, I should say. Um, unless you have a real medical reason to ride, we're going to take these 50 carts that we lease, and we're only going to lease, like, 10 from now on. And you better have a real reason to need one. But we now have this caddy program. And these aren't guys that are 35 years old who caddy here in this in the summer. And then in the winter, they go to, you know, Old Marsh in Florida and caddy there and then just flip back and forth. But we're going to specifically build a program that takes kids that um, could sure use a job in the summer. Oh, They're going to get a job. You know, they're going to get out. They're going to have cash in hand when they go home at night. They're probably going to make 50 to 100 bucks. And they're going to do that three, four, five times a week. Now, that household, which in a lot of Black families in America and Hispanic families in America is a single fit parent household in a lot of cases. Now you've got cash infused into the household. You've got a child or a teenager who is now being introduced to a game that they might fall in love with and could, you know, really be something that they're excited about. And this youth on course program that we have in the States is amazing. It subsidizes rounds for kids. So maybe they get done caddying at one o'clock and they go tee it up at one thirty at, you know, Meadowbrook down the street. Um, but the real, you know, the thing that people don't take into the equation is the relational capital that people that kids get from caddying you know like i remember being in the bag room at town and country meeting the mayor of saint paul at the time his name was norm coleman senator coleman meeting you know i would see the ceo of the biggest banks in town every week a couple times i would see the people that ran 3m i would see the people that like it was just first name basis with these people you know and um you get to watch how they conduct their lives when they take yeah. an interest in you no, like you understand what privilege becomes right like like there was a guy i'll never forget this guy his name was bill manning and he was a lawyer and there was a kid working in the bag room and he was really having a tough day and he's like what's going on and i'm going to change his name but like what's going on with juan and i was like there's something going on with his family I can't figure it out. So Juan, we'll call him, went out and caddied. And um, his dad was in some legal trouble. 
And basically, because his son was caddying to bring home money, he could actually, you know, he pro bono worked for the family to get his father, his father's situation handled differently than it likely would have, right? Like literally changed this family's life because even though Juan was having a bad day, not his real name, he showed up to work like he always did. And, you know, he was, he had that relational capital with Bill Manning to, Bill just said, you know what? No, we're going to not let, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Like no one's going to take advantage of your family. You're not going to get evicted. This isn't going to happen. Like, that's right. Let me help you. Um, That doesn't happen without him caddying for him that day. Well, I know like you can kind of, and this follows what you're saying, but yeah, okay. Golf definitely has like that privilege type uh, look to it and taste and feel to it. But there's also a lot of growth and learning that can happen there. I mean, I look at even the club that I grew up at and yeah, just besides the money that you're getting and the money's whatever, but the connections and the way that you interact with people like, Hey, if I go play golf with three members and one's a lawyer, one's a doctor and one owns a successful business, how are you going to conduct yourself around these people? How are you going to grow as a person when you're with them? You can't act the same way as you do when you're a 16 year old kid with your buddies with these guys. Well, what you, yeah. And then you'll also find out that there are people that are wildly successful by many metrics that we use yeah. who are horrible people. Totally. And you'll be like, wow. Yeah. Like that you're gross. A complete jerk. Yeah. And wow. Listen to how he talks about his employees and oh my God, I can't believe like you will get a window into people's lives who are quote unquote successful as a child and you will start to form a moral compass that is like, you know what? Maybe he does live in that massive house by the 15th green and drive this great, beautiful two-tone Bentley, but this guy's a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I don't want to be like him. I don't want to be like that guy. Right. So you'll not only see things that you can aspire to, you'll see things that you want to steer away from, you know, like I think, um, at the public scene where I grew up, like I, for, for us, it was, you know, I would get, you get dropped off, you play with kids, you know, like you mess around, like you maybe steal a beer out of the cart or whatever, like whatever, right? right. Like have you fun. Be outside. Basket of yeah. fries and a Coke and grenadine. Wild night. Yeah, like you would, you would just have fun and like get to kind of learn to interact with people. And I'll never forget, you know, uh, I grew up at this course called Duan until I couldn't go there anymore. And they, uh, gambling. And um, one day, my friend Aaron and I, we were like 13 or 14. And we get paired with this couple and lovely older couple. They're like maybe 75. And we're walking down the first fairway. And Aaron looks at the guy and says, sir, I couldn't help but notice your accent. Are you English? And I thought, I I seriously thought the guy was going to slap him in the mouth. He stopped. He looked at Aaron and he just shook his head and he said, no, son, I'm Australian. And you should never assume that people are English. And he just kept walking and he didn't say another word to Aaron for like four or five holes. And I remember looking at Aaron like, dude, your mom is you should know better yeah, yeah. It was really, you should, but then that, yeah that's how you learn though like that's the right. value of it like i 
I've learned a ridiculous amount of things from my two parents, but there's some things in life that like don't compare to being out with someone that like you don't really know. And then they're like, Hey kid, that's not how we do it. Right. Right. There's totally. a better way. This is it. I'd like to see you doing it this way from here on out. And you're like, Oh shit. Like, yeah, a little bit of that from like the right person that it, obviously there are people who are assholes. Cause I've also was in a situation in life where I was like 12 years old at a hockey game and they launched a t-shirt at me and I had a 44 year old dude tackle me and take the t-shirt out of my hands. And I'm like, sure, that yeah. guy's a prick. But one thing I would like to address going to the caddy world is like something about the money idea of it, because I, I forget what book it was that I was reading, but they kind of talked about the idea of minimum wage, at least as it relates to like, younger workers right and it's like you look back in history when we didn't really have that as much in like gas stations for instance they yeah. would employ kids they didn't pay them much but it was like hey here's experience and then they would end up going into the automotive field and then the customers end up getting their oil checked their air checked but like you can't really like because that argument of do I give you a discounted green fee to cover this kid's wage or like is there a, a balance in there that's like okay, we have youth wages where like, it's kind of more server looking like where there's a decent, a little bit of money, but like your, your idea is to hopefully get tipped out on that so that we can at least get you in here rather than like, how am I going to pay you for five hours worth of work at like $15 an hour? And like, I could just send them out on the cart, right? I don't know the challenge that I have mentally, but I did be interested in your take on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a critical point for a few things. One, let's say a national minimum wage in the United States goes to $15. You know, what the, the real collision that's dangerous is if clubs cannot get around the rule that caddies are contractors. Right. Now, it's like, contract. oh, really? Your caddy just sat here for three hours and waited to get out and nobody, well, that's 45 bucks. You know, you're going to have to pay him. Um, so that's a real peculiar situation that clubs find themselves in. Um, and, and it's part of the gig economy, you know, issue that we have in this country also, where like, you know, people that are making a career as a rideshare driver. Right. Or a food delivery person, like what? What are they? Are they contractors? Are they employees? And so clubs are going to have to face that as well. But um, if you you know, there's there's a guy named Michael Wolf who um, was a former caddy master in Cincinnati, and you, you know him as Bama Bearcat on Twitter. Um, and we talked about it one day, like if if clubs have to call caddies employees, goodbye. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's right. it something's gotta give and it'll be that experience of having a caddy that will give, you but know. But it sucks because the opportunity cut like it may not be fiscally feasible, but like all those the human cap the human relationships, all these things that now like the value of that to the person that's like I'm a high school student, maybe we should have some sort of like work placement program where I come caddy for a couple hours, you give me some golf. I mostly rely on some tips plus like a day rate of you get 50 bucks anytime you come caddy plus yeah. right like I was yeah. just going to add on to that too Tom that sentiment I think that's brilliant there because like if you look at the economy that 
we're seemingly in, but nobody wants to admit, you look at younger kids nowadays, those jobs, I've said this a million times, there's no jobs for them coming up. If you're thinking morally and thinking down the road, maybe you should open this up and give them opportunities to go out and meet people that they probably wouldn't meet to try and get a job they're probably not going to get otherwise. That's a great way to get them in. Hey, man, you got to sit and wait. Sorry, you got to sit and wait and get, not get paid. But you might get two loops today that's going to give you this much and this connection. Yeah. Probably should yeah. do it and probably get them in there early. Yeah. And like, it, it, it honestly, like you, the root cause of it is literally the golf cart. Yeah. The golf cart comes and it just destroys loops. They're mm-hmm. gone, you know, and what if you didn't have golf carts, right? Like suddenly you have a whole fleet of bags that need to go around this golf course. And it's a, you know, it's a skill. Caddying's not easy at all. Like you have to learn how to do it. And what they're doing at Common Ground with the Solish Academy, what they're doing at Goat Hill Park is you're going to, you go to Goat Hill Park in Oceanside, you are going to get a very good caddy, a very good caddy. You might have to wait 15 minutes because there's, you know, like if you get there and you haven't called ahead and like, hey, you guys have a caddy program. Can I get one? Hold on. Jaybird gets on the phone. The next thing you know, you got a kid who knows the course, knows what to say, what not to say, knows where to stand, like all of it. You know, it's dialed in. It's a craft that they learn. It pays dividends in other ways down the road. Um, And everybody wins, you know. But you know who doesn't win? The club that loses, I shouldn't say everybody, because when you lose that cart revenue um, and you're a club and you're counting on that, that's the that's the downfall. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's so many ways to look at it too, where it's like, I think back in the day, especially when pros owned the shop range and now the introduction of the carts and they see all this money coming in. Not that I'm defending the pros back in those days because they made so much money up until the club started buying the shops. Like, it was ridiculous. It wasn't necessary. They didn't need it. But, yeah, like, it, it might have got more people into the game, I guess. Like, if you, destroys parts of the game, but it also introduced a lot more people, which maybe we don't need those people anyways. But there's so many sides of that coin where, like, maybe clubs wouldn't have grown the way they did if it wasn't for the cart. But at the same time, you also crushed like you're mentioning parts of cities that like you're crushing like families you're not bringing money back in you're not bringing those connections you're not finding them jobs it's well yeah but it's not really up to you to save those families right no totally not and you can play a part in creating an environment where there is an avenue to do more and be bigger than you are right Mm -hmm. like to say like okay Hey, if I go to Minakata Club, which is an incredibly nice golf club, right? And I mean incredibly nice. I'm going to get a caddy who's probably a private school kid, who's probably going to a private college, whose parents are like, you have to do something. Go caddy. So, and those caddies are very good. Very good for the most part. You could also see a club, and I believe Baltimore Country Club has a program like this, where they have partnered with an organization, I think it's the Boys and Girls Club of Baltimore, where they say like, we specifically want to work to further kids, to have them, give them a chance to earn money, to bring home, to take into the household, right? And it's not so much about scholarship, right? But Mm -hmm. it's, 
there's a mentorship aspect to it. Um, you know, like the Evans program is wonderful. Um, but this is different, right? This is like looking at a footprint of a city and saying like, you know what, we're pretty close to this neighborhood that is a low income neighborhood, but there's a lot of great people in here. And what if we worked in concert with the boys and girls club or the school district or whoever to identify 30, 40 kids that need this chance, you know, right. we're not going to give them anything, but we're going to help them get here. There might be a shuttle from the, you know, there might be a 15 passenger van that goes from the boys and girls cool. club to, you know, the country club every morning, but like that's part of the cost. Right. And what we're going to get is our golf course is going to look better because there's fewer carts flying all over the place. We're going to be healthier because we walk. Our community is going to be healthier. And these kids are bringing home cash and, you know, learning all kinds of skills around the game. One thing I do think that is interesting, just going to the cart world. Like I know, obviously, you're not going to impact too largely how many carts are being used. But I do think due to COVID and this new influx of golfers that are out there and people just realizing they're not getting their fitness in their life is they're electing to walk a little bit more that with that program in place, Hey kid, thanks. You're going to carry my bag. It makes that walking part of it even that much more accessible rather than like I'm lugging this stuff around. So I don't know. It could be like you always go forward and then you go back. Right. It's like the nostalgia thing of now the nineties are cool again. Right. And, maybe walking starts to become a little more popular because you have places out there that are like, yeah, we walk like it's more becoming part of the culture that the fitness is there rather than like, let's just drive around. Obviously huge market of the world is going to keep driving, but I think yeah, a lot of the new golfers I've met, they're like, yeah, I like to go walk like that. It's, it's activity for me that. Yeah. I I think you'd be shocked depending where you go. Like Vancouver is nuts. Like you don't see that many people carton it's predominantly walking but that's also like where you are you're in a fitness kind of driven city you get inside like a mega metropolis like city well probably taking a buggy because they probably don't give a shit anyways like you have to be like yeah i went to the gym it's fine it's like this is a fitness driven city people hike before they go to the golf course you know yeah i think that look at I don't know about Canadian figures here, but in America, sorry, in the United States, um, my friends from Mexico hate it when I say America, right? Cause it's like, funny because the rest of the world calls the U S America and the Canadians right? are the ones yeah, that call yeah, it yeah. States. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but in the United States, um, the average height and weight, uh, it's a little big skyrocketed. Yeah. Right? Uh, a little large. Like, I, it's it's it touches the golf world in interesting ways. Like what we used to call standard grips are actually pretty small. Yeah. Like I play size grips, right? Um, but that size of the standard grip hasn't changed in like 50 years or something. And people, the average male used to be like 5'8", 145. Now it's like 5'11", to like 190, right? Like we're growing and we should walk more, you know, but we just don't. I say um, this to Tom every single time I go to the States. I'm like, Americans are huge. Like huge. every time I go down there, I feel like I'm seriously like a child. Yeah. It's also the last time you were. Yeah, that we were in Phoenix and it was, 
I thought these kids were like 40. They were 21. Yeah. I'm like, that, you guys like, are. They huge. had to have been some sort of college athlete thing because, like, that was one of the strangest <laughs> nights of my life. Like, 6'6, 250. Yeah, literally went out to this place and like it was all giants. Like it must have been the basketball, volleyball, like teams of ASU just having a night out because like literally it was like we were surrounded by giants. We're like, man, are we really like a bunch of hobbits? So I just want to dial back really quickly. Like the last thing I'd like to say about when I wrote that article for golf.com about um, let's get kids in underserved communities out caddying. I got so much, so much hate mail from people oh, for a couple of reasons, imagine. right? But like one of, the, I get hate mail every day, but one of them on, on there was like a particular like batch of haters and they came to me with this energy of like, you know, that is so bullshit that you think the solution is hiring a bunch of poor black kids to carry golf bags. Like, don't you see how bad the optics are on that? And my rebuttal to each and every one of them has been like, what makes you think they're just black? I was just going to say, it's like, did you right? read the article? Like, it just not. says poor. Yeah. Black. Like underprivileged. Yes. Right. So, and again, Ben Hogan was an underprivileged kid from a single parent home. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it, it, it's, it's funny where people's mind went with that, right? And it should have gone there because, you know, the, the root of that article was like the issues that America has, sorry, the United States has. And I'll see this. I used to go to Canada a lot for business and like, you know, interactions with, you know, the in Canada, it's just different. Yes. It's, it's just very different. Um, in the United States, the, the, still the driving dimension of black-white relation in this country is slavery, right? And the kind of diet slaveries that have happened since then, right? So you have, like, obviously Jim Crow, you have segregation. Like, there are, like, almost like little waves of oppression that are just obviously not as crippling okay. slavery, but like it all stems from that peculiar institution that we held on to that defined to this in my lifetime where my parents could buy a house when I was five years old, you know, that there are still communities in this country that have black and white proms. Think about that, that, you know, like, so it's slavery that drives so much of that and our inability to deal with that past. Um, and so when I hear people talk about grow the game, I'm kind of going crazy because I'm kind of like, you know, why don't we talk about first before, before you want to grow the game, let's talk about all of the efforts and everything that happened in the past to keep people of color away from the game. Let's confront that. Let's talk about it, not so that we can learn, but so that everybody can learn. Mm -hmm. Everybody can learn, right? Like, this is why, right? And it goes beyond color. Let's talk about why at just about every cl private club in the United States, Tuesday morning and Thursday morning are your designated, designated women's times. Like, how the hell is that still a thing? 
right? And you'll get the outlier that says, oh, well, at Acme Country Club here in Cleveland, we don't do that. Fine, whatever, right? Like the standard rule still applies. Like how the hell do we still let these unwritten rules kind of dictate how this business grows? I think to some degree that even just happens naturally. Like with women's days, like I think if you were to, that wasn't a thing, like time it would almost fall into place because it's like the dudes start colonizing and then the women are like, hey, we need a day. And then like all of a sudden they're just a day that the chicks all go meet up and they go play golf. I think it's but just habitual. That, yeah, like it, it's almost nature. Yeah. But what I think is interesting from like, yeah, even like the black prom to the white prom, it's like even going back to, your story very early on was like it's just like you fear what you don't know right so i think people need to expose themselves because it's like playing golf at the urban world where it's a little more rowdy and like they'll get under your skin and like it's that kind of vibe right where it's like yeah as a white dude who's uncomfortable with himself and like i'm like everyone compliments and doesn't approach life like going into that environment is like am I going to break down and cry? And then the same going the other way. It's like, if you're into that, where it's like our friends golf and like, they're not afraid to give you a hard time. And then you go into a, an environment where it's like, that's not how we act. Right. Like there's, there's just this like exposure problem where it's like, there's good at There's a time for this and a time for that. There's a time to be rowdy and have fun. There's a time to know when like someone's on the verge of a mental breakdown, let's not push them over the edge. Right. Absolutely. There's, there's, um, you know, there's a kind of a nonverbal language that we pick up on the golf course and it's very interesting. You know, we have this opportunity to get to know people in a very, um, in a way like in a, and they show us who they are. Right. And we're all very, very vulnerable at certain levels. Right. Um, and it's a gift to be out there. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to say this carefully. I have a lot of friends that I'll play with anywhere, but I have a few friends that I won't invite to say, like, if we're going to go play like the night game at Westchester is a little hairy. Sometimes there's, you know, there's joints being smoked all over. There's like it's a it's kind of a hard game right like yeah. it's, not, it's not an easy game to bring a lot of people into there's gambling there's partying and it's on like it's it's an intense high level game mm -hmm. right not everyone's going to be comfortable in that situation but you know if you have a friend that is comfortable in that situation bring them along you know they'll make new friends there like they will anywhere else so we definitely uh, had games like that growing up where it's like yeah, those buds we like to just have a yes. nice time with. But those guys, well, we have 12 joints and we smoke our vapes in between. And like that's how the <laughs> game goes. And it's like you, you better be ready to really turn it on because it's going to be difficult. You're going to yeah. have a case of the verticals from the first tee till the time you leave the parking lot. And it's like this is a tough game to be involved with. And it's and, and they might be like, you know, like, dude, did you bring like, hundred bucks cash because you should have. Yeah, there's an ATM inside. Like I don't, don't know these people it. that well. Like I hope you have money, right? Like it's <laughs> yeah. one of those. Yeah. I've been that person so many times where I'm yeah. like, I I hope I like. Let me just. I don't know what this could cost me in the end, but I hope I break even, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, 
So speaking of Vancouver earlier, when I was in the desert, you know, this is 15 years ago, but we hired a Canadian. Her name is Courtney Campbell Levesque. And she is now at a course called Glen Eagles in Vancouver. I think it's a nine hole course. Over in West Van. Yeah. And she started a group called Birdies, Babes and Beats. And I have cat like we haven't talked i've heard about this group yeah you know social media you kind of you can keep up with what people are doing yeah right and all i know is like i remember talking to her on the phone and she flew out to the desert with her dad and i remember her and her dad meeting them in the parking lot and i went to interview her in the office and i remember thinking like this woman could do pretty much anything she wants to do and she'll do well. Well, I really hope she sticks in golf because wow, do we need more people with this energy, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, again, I don't like the words grow the game, but you know, what really grows the game when, and this is another thing that like people talk about the COVID boom, like y- y- you will notice that a lot of people that work at golf clubs are getting burned out. Oh yeah. Right. Like big time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this loss of contact where like people are going to a facility and they don't have the chance to interact with the staff and feel that positive energy that Courtney brings to work every day. I'm sure. Cause she did when I worked with her. Um, so it is an absolute crime when you look at the percentage of golf professionals that are women. It's, yeah. it's, it's stunning, you know, like the best professional I ever worked for was not the two legends that we talked about earlier, Terry Hogan and John Miller, the best, the executor, the person that had programs, the person that had systems, the person that most closely mirrored the structure of an operation that we had at GE Capital or other places I've worked was a woman named Lisa Masters who I would see get overlooked for positions again and again and again and be denied interviews for positions that she was overqualified for. And I would just, it would break, it would just piss me off, you know, to just see like people who are either really well connected or whatever the case is, these, they get these jobs and they hold on to them for 20 years. And here you have women who are as qualified, don't kid yourself, if not more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't even get a look. They don't even get a look. And we wonder, we wonder why we don't have more women in the game. It's a machine of sexism. That's why, you know, Vancouver is kind of interesting in a way where not that I know all the courses and I see all the, it's definitely still mainly men, but there's some women in Vancouver that have taken over some fairly high level roles. I mean, we've interviewed Ashley Zibrick at Shaughnessy, who's the director of golf. We just spoke with Carrie Moffat at the, Mayfair Lakes she's also one of the coaches for UBC golf team and it's like there's a totally different approach when you hear it from that from those two ladies and you're like yeah I wish I kind of learned from you like I I like what I learned from my hip bro growing up but like you bring this attitude and direction that seems so much more almost reliable and like kind of insightful and like it, I don't know. It's just much different. Like, I guess when you grow up in that game and it's all guys all the time, and you're like, I feel like I'm in a locker room. Like, yeah. I don't feel like I'm growing. I, I am, but it's like, I could learn this anywhere. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I'd like that other opinion to kind of guide me in a better direction in this professional manner. 
I, I, it's weird, you know, I think there are, um, I often think about like, where would we be as a species if 2000 years ago, like we embraced women as true equals, you know, globally, like how many great minds never were taught to read or write because that just wasn't done where they grew up. Like it, we are, <laughs> we're paying for this, right? Like we don't know it, but we're, we're behind because we've denied half the world's population opportunity for as, as long as we've recorded history, really, you know? Um, and so it, it, it weighs on me sometimes. Like I have a daughter and I hate to be, Oh, I have a daughter guy, but like, man, thank God. Like she's born at a time where like, you know, she knows how messed up things are. Like she's pissed about it. She's nine, right? She's nine. And she's almost like an activist for like, you know, equal pay for women for like equal opportunity for women. It's, it's, you know, we talk about it, you know, like we talk about it. Like we go to this donut shop every now and then dad, how come all the white kids are the ones that take your order and take the money and all the black kids are the one in the back mm. cooking the donuts and the oil. Funny Stella, isn't it? How can we go to the golf course and it's all old white guys, dad, what's the deal? I don't like coming here anymore. Right. And thank God for people like Beth Wu, who qualified for the LA Open today, who spend time with girls and say like, you know what, I bust my ass at the golf course and I hit balls and I do it and I played at UCLA and now my daughter wants to be a Bruin worse than anything because she met Beth Wu, you know. Because she met Beth Wu, she wants to go to UCLA and she wants to make a difference. And I owe Beth big time for that. Well, let's go to... I, I like that a lot. That's amazing, actually. I love the fact that you can take inspiration from that, and hopefully your daughter takes that inspiration and moves forward with that. Let's go to something that's speaking of destroying or potentially moving forward with society, something that's very fond to you, and we don't know if it's the best thing or the worst thing. Let's talk about Hold on. Are we talking about my planned coup of the USGA? Because I can't that talk we about can that. touch on as well. With okay, because I didn't vote for any of those people. I don't know how they get to sit... On any .org board, you didn't vote for Mike Walker. Election. <laughs> okay, let's talk about golf Twitter. No vote, no peace. USJ, I'm coming. Okay, I'll be there with you if you need any, yeah. help, my friend. What would you like to know about golf Twitter, Chris? Man, like what? Like, is this the best or the worst thing that ever happened in the game? It's a lot of lawyers, right? <laughs> Have you noticed that? It's a yeah, lot of lawyers. There's a few out there. A lot of the kings are lawyers, right? So it's kind of like Game of Thrones where there's like, you know, the different little regions, right? There's like overlords of all the regions. And so I think just in social media, like your complete morons are mostly on Reddit. Yeah. I shouldn't say morons. That's really mean because there's some the great people. It's the deep there. divers. I always call Reddit ground zero of the internet. Yeah, Reddit is, I just got a set of clubs and I'm now, I'm golfing. Yeah. What did you what did you hit today? Oh, I hit 106. Like it's just starting out. So like let's be kind to those people. Then the next level is like Facebook where it's kind of the mouth breathers. Yeah, Facebook's the, dead. The bomb tech people, right? And those buy a bunch of T's get entered for a draw group. Yeah, so right. There. Then you have Instagram, which is like 
everything's good. Like all superficial bullshit, like Eric Anders Lang thrives there for a reason. And then Twitter's like where the Twitter's where Twitter's the players like, play. You know, better, have, <laughs> better have substance on Twitter because you will get beheaded by the entire world. Or like, like you better bring it on Twitter or endangered species will bust your ass. Like you have to know that like, you, I mean, look, I've been crushed on Twitter several times, like in school, like it's, it's, it's the rucker of pickup basketball. I don't know if that's lost on you guys, but like, it's, that's, you know, people take swings, man. And like, yeah. but not really, it's not like just like trolls, right? Like okay. it's not that. It's pretty it's knowledgeable like, people in the golf Twitter world. Like you, you kind of can't deny it. Like, I, I don't ever like to take any sort of social media side because I think it's all ridiculous. But yeah. like, it's not like someone on Instagram or Facebook just like ranting at you. It's like, hey man, here's some stats. You're wrong. You need to yeah. fucking yeah. check your shit before you post this. Yeah. Like you know, if, a, I, if a guy like Justin Ray came at me with stats, I'd be like, holy shit. Like I had yeah. no idea yeah. this was coming. You know, so Harry Arnett, who, is, um, who runs municipal clothing now, um, and was the executive vice president of marketing for Callaway, said something about like, look, Laz, you're wrong, man. Like, we don't need to roll back the ball or any equipment. The game has not gotten easier. Look at this data study of handicap indexes. And so I just sit there and I say to myself, all right, Harry, who probably has a substantial amount of his retirement tied to something that might have something to do with golf, is clearly very smart and very well read on golf and made a wonderful company, a great company and changed the way Callaway is perceived in the world. And there's no way those Kardashians would have got those clubs if Harry was still around. Put that aside. Harry says, Laz, the game's not gotten easier. Look at the handicap data. And I can say to Harry like, okay, aside from the fact that you're telling me the game's not easier with a power built persimmon citation head which is tiny versus a great big birth of 460 cc's if you don't think that's easier i don't know that we're arguing about the same things but like you're using it to you're using a metric that i'm the wrong person to have that discussion with because i'll be like first of all i'm old enough to know that like when i was growing up in the 80s not many people had handicaps so don't come at me with like handicaps haven't really gotten better because we've had an influx of golfers that are shitty keeping an index and like, they're going to bring up the, the number. Right. And I've also played with those power built citations and the Callaway big Berthas, And I love new clubs. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the game, you know, we can have that discussion and be on opposite ends of it. And I respect Harry and his willingness to believe that the game has not gotten easier due to equipment gains. Okay, fine. I don't care enough about the tour, if if you know what I mean. Like I right. do like care relativity enough. Relativity is a factor here. What are we measuring? Yeah. Tour is a different game. That's not the it's same game. game. But I do care that they that my daughter won't get to see British Opens at St Andrews because it's just way too small. Yeah, that's too bad. On the plus, she can go play St Andrews. Who really cares, right? But like 
like there are courses that are just going to be gone relics. You, you, we can't hold any events here. That is the only thing the game will lose mm -hmm. at its highest level. The chapels of our game will no longer get to hold and host the most important tournaments. If that doesn't mean anything to you, then go enjoy Karsten Creek with everybody else. And we'll play it at 8,200 yards. Who cares? Right? Like have fun. Um, it means something to me that I get to watch Pebble Beach as a U.S. Open venue. I get to watch Augusta play as a true par 70. It's not even a 72 anymore. It, it means something to me that I've been to St. Andrews and one day, you know, we're going to watch Jordan Spieth raise a cup there again. Like all those things are important to me somehow because I'm kind of a nerd like that. But um in a generation that's grown up in a golf cart using huge clubs. So they just swing hard and they don't even have to walk to find it. They just drive to find it. So there's no consequence for this big swing. The cart once again comes into play here. Um, they just want to have fun and that's cool too. I mean, I get that. Right. And some of the best back and forth is Brandel Chambly and a guy named Matt Mollica um, who has like, couple thousand followers versus Brandel's 200,000 in. So Matt Mollica lives in uh, Australia, Melbourne, and Brandel lives in wherever, Scottsdale or, or Orlando or whatever. And like they are on opposite sides. Matt has maintained his position while Brandel flip-flops a little bit. But for the most part, Brandel comes with statistics that his interns get for him and that other people get for him. And he makes a really compelling case. You might not agree with it, but that's kind of okay. That's that's why we're here, right? Like, it's okay to talk about it. Um, you certainly can't question Brandel and be like, you idiot. And when people do say that or make fun of his wife for how young she is or whatever it is, yeah, he blocks them because they're assholes, mm -hmm. right? Like, have a take, make it. You don't have to be an asshole to make it, right? There's just a lot of assholes already on golf Twitter anyway. And wow. a lot of them are anonymous and a lot of them are lawyers and this is what they do. Right. And so, you know, um, and a lot of them are right leaning and a lot of them are quote unquote Christian conservatives. And it's like, they just have a certain MO, right? Like, wow. yeah, like, and it's fine. You know, like we can agree on things or not. It's fine. You, you know? have to have those discussions, like you said, because that's yeah, dude. Like, like, like I'm all here for it, right? Like, I don't block it. anybody, Tom. Yeah. I don't block anybody, and my DMs are open, and they're full of vinegar and piss and vitriol, <laughs> because I don't want that to show up on my feed necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't want that seen right. by like other people, because it's like, well, nobody. I'm not trying to start that. a war out here, but like. I mean, a coup, maybe, but yeah, yeah not, not but a is, war. Isn't it funny yeah. that like something as pure as just like, hey, I like golf can turn into like something so vile. It's like you my Twitter feed, golf. like the, well, the no, Forjack feed, I keep very clean. I'm like golf only, nothing else. And it's like, I like this, but it can get hot. And you're like, man, this is just a game. Like, well, so like, I've this. been blocked by a lot of people because I'll call them out on what I perceive, maybe right or wrong, right? Because I fuck up all the time, but I will call someone out on some bullshit in a fucking hurry. Right. And Fair. what is that do? blocked? Right. So like, 
Um, I spent, I, I was burned out of golf. I didn't really want to play golf. I just was working all the time. And I kind of fell back in love with golf at a place called Goat Hill Park. Touch on that, and, please. Yeah. yeah so this I was is on like the, road. the perfect I public the track. Road. I like from 2012 to 15, I was on the road like 40% of the time. I was going to see WestJet in Calgary. I was going to see Bombardier in Montreal. I was going to the Toronto site for Bombardier. I would go to, I was everywhere. I was running sales for a company that was in the aerospace, one of the two giants of aerospace. So Atlanta, Chicago, wherever there's a major airline, I was there. Were you selling turbines? I was selling interiors. So you know, you know how like the bathrooms seem a little smaller these days. And yeah, that was me. Thanks. Man. Um, you Thanks for and, that. Yeah. Um, so we were super not. successful. Like as you can tell, right? Like you get on a Delta United flight. Yeah, that you was going Air Asia. Yeah. It's even worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, can't those, go to the bathroom in there. Sold all of those. We sold all of those, right? So I was burned out, and my looking back, like my family was falling apart, my marriage was falling apart, my relationship with my daughter where it wasn't where I wanted it to be. It was the only thing that was important to me. So when I'd get back home, I would just spend time with my daughter at the park, swimming, whatever we'd do. Um and. I was with my friend Parker, we were getting a coffee and I was like, dude, I just want to get competitive again. Like, I don't think I could break 85 right now. And like, I'm going to get my index going. I'm going to qualify for the mid-am. I'm going to, we're doing this. Right. And he was going to help me get better again. And um, I was like, so I got to go get a, a handicap. Should I go do it at Sandpiper? Cause he lived in Santa Barbara. He's like, no dude, go down to the goat. And I was like, what's the goat? He's like, it's called Goat Hill Park. It's an Oceanside. So I drove down and walked in the golf shop and, you know, there was some guy like on the phone, like there's one guy kind of running the whole thing and um, he's busy and like running all over and this guy walks up, Hey, how can I help you today? And it's John Ashworth. Right. And I'm like, hi, my name's Laz and I don't know who this guy is, right? And I'm like, so I would like to play golf today. And in addition, I would like to join your men's club and I would like to keep my handicap index here. He's like, let's go play. Like, great, what's your, I'm Laz, I'm John, good to meet you. So what do you do, John? Well, this is my place. I have a golf clothing company called Link Soul. Like, I mean, this is, this is it, right? So like, um, I end up, playing golf there, keeping my index there, getting the game back. And I wrote a story about um, kind of going to play there, like a course review, but really about how this course had transformed itself from a very poorly run, neglected municipal course to a very intelligently um, 2020 version, almost like a startup in a lot of ways um very clever use of what was called the turf reduction program where if you took grass off your property you were given money right to put towards that property um and how the culture there had really come to define the course and i wrote it for a, a website called golf club atlas and a guy whose name is jeff shackleford um 
put it in his weekly newsletter. And when that happened, suddenly, like, I started getting emails from people I went to high school with, people that I hadn't seen in forever. They're like, dude, you're in Jeff Shackelford's newsletter. I didn't know you golfed anymore. I was like, yeah. And then, um, yeah, so if it wasn't for Goat Hill Park and John Ashworth, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. That's amazing. What, yeah. Like, what, there's this, like lore about goat hill like especially as a canadian like we kind of hear about it but even across america i'm sure but or the united states as you prefer it's almost like the ideal public golf club and that in common grounds as well but that also is like the core crenshaw tie but goat hill just has this and i guess kind of like winter park in orlando and it's like it's like this is like the yeah. perfect okay let's be real here right describe winter it, park right? is not goat hill park is in a working class neighborhood and like you will drive right by someone who is super high on meth you will drive by homeless people there's a check cashing place an eight iron away from the driving range it's a rough it that community needs a golf course in mm -hmm. a different kind of way okay right that, yeah that's so good i don't know the context up, when you go play there look if you're single you might be the only english speaker in your group but you're going to be the fourth golfer in your group, right? You're, you, 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 the rules of golf are fucking adhered to at Goat Hill Park. Don't just whip out another ball and hit it like it ain't shit because there's games there, right? Like people are playing. You have to be aware of the fact that you're at a natural, pure golfer's club. It is not the postcard side of San Diego the way Winter Park is somewhat – affluent little part of town that happens to have a nice nine hole golf course and a bunch of people that went to college that live around it, that know what's going on in terms of like the Brooks brothers kind of way, right? Like it's just a different scene. Goat Hill's super unique in that regard. Um, and the competition level is, I mean, exceptional. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, forget it. Like you're not, um, it's hard. It's it's a hard golf course, but like Dennis Paulson's going to beat your ass, right? And he's not giving you any shots. And Dean Wilson is going to beat your ass. And Mark Warman might just be like they're really good players. Mm -hmm. And that's not even naming it. Like Jay Montoya is a slayer, right? Like he works there. Um, Jeff Gipner, another guy who's just played there five hundred times, knows every bounce, and you're going to get got until you've been around the track a few times because it's, it's, you got to learn it and you have to, you know, the, there's just no room for ego there because if you have any, it'll get stepped on really quickly. Oh, it sound just like a magical place to me. I need to go there. It sounds like you might just get your ass chewed out though. Like, but I'm okay with that. Right? Like, I <laughs> well, like, no, but like you get to get back. Yeah, you know, exactly. You got to like give it back. Beating, yeah. You're not getting beat into a gang here. Like you get to hit back all day. Like it's you can make shots there, man. It's yeah. fun. Is the Goat Hill model the model that needs to be followed? Like the more places around the country need to follow that model. Like you're kind of saying, put well, them back no, into those areas that need, need to a golf open course. their eyes, right? Like they need to understand that. Like, I mean, I worked. I I reached out to John and Jeff Shackelford and said, "Hey, there's a really suspect slash shitty nine hole golf course here on the west side of los angeles called penmar and like let's see what we can do here so like it's not necessarily the model but the 
the driving dimension that has to be followed is that you have to have smart, passionate people to, to see if there's an opportunity. So like number one, if you don't have the turf reduction program, you don't have Goat Hill Park. If you don't have someone who's passionate about the game the way John is passionate about the game, you don't have Goat Hill Park. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of the country, if you go to Jacksonville Beach Golf Club, which is run by people who work, you know, by a community that understands how to operate a golf course and cares about it and makes it the right way. That's equally awesome. That's a model too, right? But what, what I would urge people to think about is that they're like, man, we got to get a goat hill around Cleveland or around Seattle or around, you know, Flin Flon, Manitoba, wherever the hell you're from, right? Like, go look at this, the, the, the clubs you have now, right? And in the United States here, we have something called, I think it's called the Freedom of Information Act. So the first thing I did was I went to the park and rec board and was like, yeah, I would like your financials for the last three years on your public golf operations. Only to find that there are two clubs that make money, the other seven facilities lose money. So now you go in and you say, all right, how do we approach this city and say, look, we'll lease and operate this nine hole facility. Like Courtney's running Glen Eagles and like Penmar's like not even a shadow of that, right? But it could be something like that, right? And say, okay, look, you're losing $1.2 million a year. You lease out the food and beverage and you're losing money there. Um, like we will assume it. Here are the investments we will make into it. Here are the partners that will help us make those investments. Here's what, you know, everybody that works there will either get offered a job in the park and rec division elsewhere, or we will do this, but there has to be a give. And the thing that made the give so easy at Goat Hill Park was the turf reduction program provided funds so that they can make those improvements immediately. So you want to look at what the water situation is. You want to look at what the lease situation is, if there is any. And you, you want to look at places where you can make a compelling case. Because if you think you're just going to show up and buy a golf course and make it, you're not going to. You know, like the timing and the place and the politics have to line up. And if you can do that, you can win. Now, I'm working for a club here in the city. It's a city course. There's a few city courses out here and they are run. A few of them are, including the one that I work at, is run by an outside company that runs the pro shop, food and beverage, the driving range. But the golf courses, owned, the green fees are owned by the golf course or by the city. They own, they take that. Mm -hmm. The private company takes the driving range and any shop money, whatever, food and beverage. Sure. And they've yeah. done that with a few clubs here, and it's a similar idea to what you're talking about. And I, I don't know the deep dive on the financial side of it, but there is it, it, what they did is they eliminated the pros from the shop and they moved them down to the range. It's like you, now you just teach. Okay, so now I never see a pro. When I walk into the shop, I never see. There's no good product to look at. There's no good merch. There's no pros buying. That, that I think that method is very good to help grow the golf course. Sure. Yours is a little, uh, Goat Hill is a bit different with the turf reduction because that's deeper rooted, but it'll, I've been saying this a lot lately to some of my friends around here. Like it takes away the community of the golf course. Like you don't join a club to join. You're not joining a business. You're joining a club to like join the community. And when you take that away, like, you know, it's like walking into the shop and seeing the guys that you know, you know, every day, like you talk about that guy that's in the shop at Goat Hill, that's a player and fun hey, guy. Yeah. 
And it's like, imagine yeah. you lost that and now you just have a cashier. It's like, yeah. mm, I kind of don't like this. I know yeah. the course is doing well, but I don't feel like I'm welcome. Like, well, you know, there's there's a tribal aspect. So I'm in the men's exactly club which is in Ohio, and we absolutely have a tribal aspect there. Goat Hill has a very strong tribal aspect. Rancho Park, which is the closest to my house, which is a men's club I was in, um, they, and I don't blame them, but they don't even try to have a golf shop because everyone shops at the big box stores or the megagolf.coms and the Ebays, and like, why even try to compete in that arena? And they don't have anyone that, is willing to spend a couple hundred bucks to, to get a logo that you'd actually be proud to wear mm -hmm. versus John and Jeff Cunningham have created a brand at Goat Hill Park that is really interesting and ties in really nicely to the Link Soul ethos. And we lack that at Soul Park. At Soul Park, we don't have the... Um, it's the it's the it's the structure of the golf club, the events we play in, the, the fact that you can request people, but you kind of don't. You just play with who you play with. It's the it's the course and the competition that brings us together there. But the shop is very much what you can buy anywhere else, right? Yeah, I just and, mean more mean the shop being like the community of it. There's nothing better yeah, than going yeah. into the shop and just chilling with the boys. Well, and I think the other thing that I've noticed since COVID struck is that the parking lot, like, you know, people think this golf boom is going to just change the game. And I don't necessarily agree with it. I think a couple of things like in a lot of places, you'll have a tee sheet that went from eight minute tee times to 10 minute tee times. And so people think, oh, you lose a couple of tee times an hour, but really you lose 25% of your tee times mm -hmm. in a given hour. So it's a bigger hit than people think. And I've noticed that like outside beverage consumption on course and after round has gone through the roof as far as people bringing coolers or sitting in the parking lot, like having yes. a beer afterwards because they can't go in. Yeah. Right. There's nowhere to go in and sit down. So let's just sit in the back of, you know, the Prius here with the hatchback open. And I noticed you know, that at my course. It's, the, it's like tailgating. So, you know, they're like, oh, golf is booming. And if you think, you can trust the National Golf Foundation for statistics. Go look at who's on their board and see if you want to trust them. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the game's in a really good spot. There's people that are interested in it. I hope some of them go away because they probably shouldn't be golfers, but I hope the I ones that should be, like, understand that, like, this is a dance that we do when we get here. You know, we hit when we're ready. You know, like we play fast, we, we talk when we move, we, you know, we pay right away when we get done gambling. Like there's just certain things we do and welcome to the tribe, but these are the rules, you know, and there are some, and um, I think the game's going to be okay. I don't know how much more it really needs to grow i just hope that the lives that it can touch it gets to touch and um you know it does so in a positive way i know it has for me so you know grateful for it i think it is interesting because yeah golf is one of those like the scalability of a golf course like there's just unless they add a five ball like 10 minute tea times like you're you have a finite amount of tea times in a day because the sun rises and sets right and if you have 
four people going out every so many minutes. And then you stretch that out two minutes, like you said, losing 25%, which is where I've kind of introduced like, why not the five ball? If you can make it around fast enough and like you're on pace, it at least adds 20% more revenue to each slot of time. Six, five. Keep going. However many you can go. I'm a huge proponent of a party ball, right? Like as many people as you can, as long as you get around the course in time, basically, right? The second you are not right behind the group in front of you, you're picking up and you're going until you are waiting on the group in front of you. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, if we were a tribe of all golfers, you're telling me you and five other friends couldn't get a six in the round and keep pace? I we I'm sure we could. My friends could easily keep pace. Playing Thanks. six, walking. No question. Cause we don't like, you know, we don't we play ready golf. Like if soccer, someone's hit it to two feet, they're tapping in. Like it's fine. Like yeah. it's I, pl- not I played in a ten person horse race and we kept up with the group in front of us. Yeah. It's not that hard. You like, know, Chris Tom, I don't know where the four hour round came from and John Miller and I were kind of chatting about this, but we were like, where the hell did that come from? Cause if you have friends that are in Scotland, I was right, just going to bring this up. They with you. play fucking fast. Like they're done in three hours. I, I, we won't go too much longer here, but I did need to touch on this just because of your connection with this man. I just finished listening to a course called Scotland and the way that he described golf over there was like, yeah, you play in three hours and you very rarely see a four ball. And if they are, it's all shot. So you only see two balls down, mainly threesomes. And it's like, this is how you keep pace. Where, you're right. Where did that four-hour round come from? Yeah. Because it wasn't yeah. from the beginning of the game. So why is it here now? You know, when we look at... So today I was at this dog track called Wood Ranch. And there's an LPGA qualifier at this place. And um, it is in a canyon with a housing community built around it. So there is a geographical driving dimension, which is very much the canyon, but really it's not there if there's not houses around it, right? Mm -hmm. And we live in this country, at least, in a world where the majority of the golf clubs that people go to with the fountains and the cart paths and the two minute drives between holes and like, you know, we live in, in a world where most of the golf courses built are there to supplement sales of real estate. You know, and so it's not necessarily that way in England, um, which, by the way, people sleep on England all the time. That's a great golf country as well. It's not necessarily that way in, in Scotland, and it certainly wasn't that way when the game first came over here, you know, so... When you go to some, like, if you go to a club that's fairly old here, you'll notice there's the tee to the green walk is 10 seconds, right? Like you're from the green, you're to the next tee and you're just moving. So that really facilitates things, you know, but when you've got carts and you've got big gaps between holes and you've got people like we were talking about before who just don't quite understand, like you drop someone off, then go to your ball and play, you know, people just don't know how to play, right? Um, so if I could, I'll tell you, like I wrote Tom Coyne an email after reading that book, a course called Ireland. Mm. And I never thought he'd write me back, right? But I was like, dude, I just read your book and I spend, you know, 35% of the year in hotels 
eating at the hotel restaurant, drinking at the bar. And it's like super nice to have a book that feels like there's a friend who's telling you a story of the trip they took. And he wrote me back, right? And we kind of had this exchange going. And, and at the time I was doing a lot of copywriting for aviation interior magazines, which is gut-wrenching work and really like sounding. proposals and stuff. And, and like, really it was kind of Tom Coyne that got the bug in my head to say like, you know what? I should write about golf. Like the most fun I have is writing my fantasy football newsletter. I could probably have just as much fun writing about golf, you know? So huge thanks to Tom Coyne. And I'm going to his book launch for a course called America on May 24th in Philadelphia. We actually have Tom Coyne coming on on the 26th of May, actually, to talk about his new book. But it's funny, like, hearing Man, you talk you're going to get to talk to Tom two days after. So when he did um, the, the horrible nine-hole course that I was talking about um, in Los Angeles by my house, I played the first few holes with Tom Coyne. Sick. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I wore my, I wore my A Course Called America t-shirt. And, I, um, the way you described Course Called Island... I was talking to Tom recently about like when I first started listening to the course called Scotland, I was like, I feel like this is very relatable. Like, I feel like every yeah. golfer has heard this story before by someone or I've yeah. told it to someone. And I'm like, I get what this guy is going through. Like mentally, I just haven't seen what he's seeing, but I'm like, I, I, I know these feelings like, God, it's like, it almost feels harsh, but like you love it and you're addicted to listening to it. I don't think Tom Coyne realizes how many people, He's so talented yes. because he has this gift of becoming the friend that you always had. Yeah. Like he's like, you've always known him. That voice that he has is somewhat, you know, it's timeless and it just feels like someone you've always had in your life. So when you read his work, it's like running into that friend you haven't seen in 10 years and you don't miss a beat. Mm -hmm. And that gift I'm grateful for because it's, propelled me to kind of push myself to like read things that I've written in the past and be like, God, that's horrible. You know, like you, you know, you're not, now you're just sounding like a dick, like talk, like you talk to the people that you love and, and let that shine in your work. And man, does Tom Coyne like master that skill. He's, I agree. He's incredible. Yeah. He's incredible. He got me sold on it. He's Paisley's been, pushing a course called Scotland down my throat. And now it's like, it just, you know how the universe just has a way of yeah, slowly man. forcing yeah. you into something. It's like, yeah, I can't, it's in, I can't ignore it anymore. He's to. a really good player too. He's a stick. Like, he's yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's, he's a stick. Like let's yeah. not get ourselves. Yeah. Oh yeah. man, it's too funny. But Laz, I, I just want to throw it out there. I know we've stolen so much of your time here tonight. We're so great. Speaking of being grateful, like super grateful just to have you on. Like this is an amazing chat. And like, God, like I'm just excited for this border to open, man. And we can come down to Goat Hill and play some golf. Yeah, the Goat's exceptional. It's, it's a really fun place. I think, um, you know, like if you're down this way, I would highly recommend Rustic Canyon, which is a public course a couple hours north of Goat Hill Park. I would highly recommend Coronado Island. Okay, hold on. This is my last question then for you. I had this written down. We're coming through, let's say we're coming through on a Thursday to Sunday in LA or around your area. Give us an itinerary. Golf and a couple places to eat. Yeah, so Thursday you land at LAX, right? Around two-ish, um, maybe noon. 
Yeah, like noon, I would I would probably go to a place called Superba on Lincoln Avenue in Superba, um, just kind of in Venice before you get into Santa Monica. And then I would go and play Westchester right by LAX and get in the Thursday night skins game. And you will run into a few people that were that you've heard of that maybe you have seen on television and you will be playing skins with them. And it's a lot of fun and being bring cash. I will throw that in there. <laughs> then Friday morning, I would drive North, North, North to Ohio. And Ohio I, would play, I would play soul park. I would not play at the Ohio Valley Inn. Really? Would, it's soul parks way better. Okay. Um, and like a fifth of the price or something crazy. I would play soul park. Then I would play Rustic Canyon, which some people I really respect would tell you is like the third best course. Like it's obscene, mm-hmm. you know. Then I would probably now it's Friday, right? And yep. you've just done all that. Okay. So now there's drink. Yeah. So now you, you know what? Go to Demerits at the Ohio Valley Inn. And you know, so that way you can at least go check it out and, and walk around that place. It's not bad. Um, then I would bomb it hard, like down to, um, I'd go like all the way, like, I don't know how you're going to get there that fast. It's probably like three hours driving, but I would get to San Diego, man. Like I would get down there. Now you can roll the dice at Torrey Pines if you want. Um, but what you can definitely do is go to Coronado which is wonderful. And then in the, and like that last part of the day, you can go to goat and play there. Cause it won't take, you know, it'll be packed cause it's popular, but you'll then feel the goat for what it is, which is a tribe of people. A lot of people go to go to a park that don't play golf a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting. They just oh, go to hit dang. balls and like, hang. yeah. I'm like, just the vibe. Uh, yeah. And um, then I would, now, Sundays, you're, when are you leaving? Say we leave Sunday evening. Sunday evening? Yep. Okay. So now you're going to want to come back towards LAX and on the way back, um, maybe splurge and play one of the Tory courses um, and then come back because you're probably going to tie one on at Goat Hill Park. And yeah. I recommend the Finn Hotel in Oceanside nearby. The Motel 6 is actually really nice there, too. It's nice enough. All right. Um, sounds like a good game plan for us. Am I'm I gonna get it, like a because it's so questions? close yet? Like I can't do this without you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I am I gonna get the 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 flash ten questions tonight? Is there? I don't even I'll have. He has breath. all the questions. Those <sighs> not so rapid fire. Were you fire. ready for him? I didn't know what they were, so I was like, I didn't even know what to do here. But there's like gonna be a quiz of ten questions, and I don't. You know, our itinerary that gets emailed over is loosely based on what could potentially happen on the pod, and then we kind of just show up and see sure. what. I'll sure. give I'll give you the last question that I normally give. Mm-hmm. You're commissioner for a day. What are you changing in golf, pro or amateur? Eh, stick with amateur, actually. So, am I the president of the USGA? Yeah, you're our USGA RNA so RCGA. Is, I've executed my coup of the USGA, and you I'm have now in completed charge. it. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So the first thing I do 
is absolutely reestablish and enforce the pub links for what it is, which is a public golfers championship, not a collegiate all-star game, not an excuse for people who are members of private clubs to also be in a men's club at the local nine hole track so they can play in the pub links. And I put an emphasis on making that the working man's amateur championship because there is no amateur championship right now. The U.S. amateur is essentially a professional collegiate tournament. Yeah. The men amateur is kind of trending that way. You know, like um, I would put a hard emphasis on that and I would cut. I would I would. Sorry, you asked me for one thing and that's what I would do. OK, I think that's good. Now, that's just America, but talking about globally, what would you do for the game itself? Take yourself out of the USGA. You now yeah. run the RNA, RCGA, South African Golf Association, Australian, whatever. Yeah. Global golf I would, I would, I would see, I would have a study performed and I would take, you know, I would take the right and honorable 13, the original rules of golf, right? the right and honorable company of Edinburgh golf has put out an original 13 rules of golf. And I would do an extensive study to understand how we got to where we are and how it is that in playing golf, people touch the ball so goddamn much in a round. I've never seen a time in my life where there's more, Oh, I think this is a drainage ditch. Do I get a drop? No, you don't get a drop. Like just how do we get the game back to, I don't care about the technology, but there is a consequence to where you hit the ball and that's where you find it. And that's where you play it. And you don't touch it until you're picking it up out of the hole. How do we get there? That's what I would do. Back to when happy Gilmore or shooter McGavin had to hit one off his foot and play it as it lies. Mr. Gilmore. Rub with the green, man. Don't go back and hit another like big deal, right? Like it's called the provisional figure that out. It's not that hard, you know? And like these new rules just, I'm, I'm like, what, like, I don't know how much you guys know about Sandy Tatum, but to me, like, I understand how, you know, you could be like, oh, here's, you know, the elite of the elite. But, like, I think in a lot of ways, he's like a golf prophet, right? Like a real dialed back, like, golf purist mind, but in the best way. Not a purist to be exclusive, but a purist in the sense to say, this game actually had a deeper meaning and the more we break away from its foundations, the more shallow the game becomes. Right. This is bullshit that I can hit a ball over the fence and go to the edge of the fairway and drop, and I'm hitting four from there. That's the new – like, in what universe is that right? Not yeah. the one I want to live in, guys. I think I can kind of close. I think I can. I think I can close. I can kind of close this circle here, and in my own little head, this is how I'm viewing it. And just to quote Mr. Coin, when he described the game moving from Scotland to America, when he went, "You take the open game from the closed country and take it to the open country, take the closed game in an open country," it didn't really actually open up the game. It made it tighter, and then you have all these pockets of all the game in all of this giant country. They make their own rules now. And now you have the club rules. You have local rules. And that's probably where you're going to stem back when you start to do your deep dive on where how you got to here. You got to go through years, hundreds of years of like local rules that well, you moved know over what? to the you open know what, country. Chris? Here's, my, here's my answer to that. Right? This is why the 
you know, it doesn't have to be a military coup. It doesn't have to be a violent takeover <laughs> of the U.S. It could be, you know, just a digital takeover. They might not even know, right? But your club where you want to have local rules, you want to have a handicap system, you want to have any of your members maintain a handicap, fuck you. Here's the rules. <laughs> and if you don't play by them, you don't get to keep a handicap. Any other golf handicap network, I will take them out. I will take them down through subterfuge or whatever measure I have to take, but I will take them out. Hell yeah. I love yeah. that. That's a Is fucking perfect handicap way. system. Do you think it's all fun and games out there? Go look at how Airbnb built their empire. Yeah. yeah. Seriously. Do you think it's a happy story? Yeah. Go, go look behind the curtain, folks. Everything's warfare. I would change that rule. And if that club didn't like it and they wanted to do local rules, have a good one. Have a good one. See how that works out for you. That's a fucking great way to cap it off, Les. I love that, dude. Yeah, sorry for being so hostile on this podcast. No, man, I love it. That's just, we're leaving it open for the next visit. Okay, so I want to tell you guys, like, my favorite uniform ever, ever, was the early Vancouver Canucks uniform with the V, the black ones. Wait, with the V, the the black with the skate? The black V. And I will also tell you that talcum powder on my contact friction tape on my Titan hockey stick because Wayne Gretzky did. And I had a Jaffa helmet like Gretzky and Yari Curry. Like the most disgusting I have ever long made. admired Edmonton and Calgary and, and, and the Western provinces um, are for sure my favorite provinces. So thank you for all your contributions to the world. Do you watch I, hockey still? No, I you should start I watching Connor McDavid. I watch Connor. Okay, yeah, good. I watch Connor McDavid. Um, I I don't really watch sports that much anymore, sadly. It's tough. There's too much to, yeah. too much to watch. I think maybe I've had enough. Exactly. Laz, where can people find you if they don't already? Well, I'm typically at the uh, Primo Paso Coffee Shop on <laughs> 7th and Montana. Um, <laughs> I walk a lot. I'm on the street there. Um, I'm in the park, egg, shell, uh, egg, egg park. Quite a bit. Like um, you mean like on social media? Yeah, f- just fire yeah. the socials out if you need. I like yeah, the I, I, mean, yeah, I, I like the life aspect yeah. of it more. Sorry. Like, um, yeah, I'm Laz, I think Laz dash underscore Versailles is my handle on all media channels. Sick. Well, yeah. thank you, dude, once again for jumping on with us. This is a blast. Um, I this is a long one for us, and I think I could have gone for much, much longer to be honest. I will save it for another time. I think uh, I'd love to be on the floor. Yeah. Listen, anything that Derek Lane's a part of, I'm happy to be a part of. Solly has been a part of it. Now that Tom Coyne's going to be a part of it also, man, this has been one of the true honors of my golf life. So thank you so much. Well, thank it's you, man. It's our pleasure. Lads. I just want to say quickly, I appreciate you coming on and yeah, all of your insights, what you're doing for the game. I always am down with a coup every now and then. Try to keep it as bloody bloodless as possible, but you know what? It happens, right? Yeah. Thank you guys. Enjoyed Thanks, it. man. And we will chat with everybody next week. Thank you. Bye bye.